0: In 1974, I got to know Donal Lunny and me, O'Donal, who are working on production with uh, several albums we were doing for Galway, namely uh, Trina's solo album, uh, an album by Paddy Keenan, and indeed the uh, second album by Clannad. And from there we got the idea of of forming a company to market the recordings by the Bothy Band, which they themselves were forming at that moment. I think the initial concept that maybe we we would do a recording uh, under the Lynn label, but when we investigated the situation we found that it would be possible to uh, start a complete record company based on the recording, the kind of material, that we had done up to then, that they had produced up to then, uh, producing the Bothy Band recordings and going ahead and doing solo albums by the various members and other musicians that both Donal and Michal felt were worthy of um, being recorded. Donal had worked for many years with various international record companies. He felt that the terms offered to himself and to other musicians were very really restrictive. Uh, he felt he'd like to see more freedom in the studio um, more ease at selecting the material he also wished that he could um, be in a position to record certain artists that he actually saw himself and heard and um, if you're not working with your own record company you've got to virtually hawk this material around so in that way like Mulligan as, as as a company itself was able to do all of these things. I felt it was a great idea. I mean, I still do. Um, obviously there were a lot of difficulties and shortcomings in our approach to the whole thing which only emerged after several years of working that system. But the, the principle of um, allowing certain musicians like Donald and the Botty Band more freedom to create their music in, in the studio was, was a very good idea you. <laughs>
1: record companies to see uh, who'd, who'd give us a deal and um, uh, Grey Lynn were interested but we felt we wanted to sort of I suppose remain neutral th- feeling that there was enough Irish content in the music of the album anyway without uh, say having the cover in Irish or whatever that that was one reason why we didn't go with Grey I suppose um, uh, and other companies uh, I don't suppose we would have had too much trouble getting a deal at the time, but anyway, we I don't know exactly who brought up the idea of forming uh, the label itself, but Michal, Seamus and myself uh, decided to have a go at it and um, give ourselves a generous uh, uh, um, percentage uh, through discussions and uh, uh, trying to plan things. We, we had maybe a very idealistic approach to uh, to what uh, we could do for um, musicians and bands and whatever in terms of uh, the deal, in terms of our conditions, the contract which they would have with the, the company. Um, one of the significant ones was that uh, the company paid for recording costs and that's generally not... It's generally not done. Uh, usually what happens is a record company will advance uh, the artist enough money to pay for the recording cost, and sometimes more money than, than will you know, so there's some left over. But what you're, what you're actually doing is getting uh, your share of the uh, profits on the album in advance, and it's only when sort of several hundred thousand albums have been sold that you start making that you actually start getting more money back from it, but in in effect you pay for it yourself.
2: There you heard two of the founder directors of the Mulligan Recording Company, Seamus O'Neill and Donal Lunny. The third man involved with Mulligan at its inception was Michal O'Donnell, now living in America. He, along with Donal Lunny, was a founder member of the Bothy Band. Also involved with Mulligan in its early days was PJ Curtis. PJ managed and travelled with the Bothy Band, subsequently joined the company and went on to produce several albums for the label.
3: The uh, whole idea about Mulligan was that it was to be um, a kind of a cooperative where the, uh, the people that, uh, that uh, came along to record for Mulligan would have uh, a, f- a large say in h- how they presented their sound so that they wouldn't have some A. Norman coming along to say you have to record in this studio, You're, you have to record with these musicians uh, and that at the end of the day that they had artistic control taken away from them which most artists that record for the major labels at the time Uh, or even the minor labels in Ireland, had little or no say in the final product. And the whole idea, the philosophy behind Mulligan was that the artists should have some say in the final product, which, after all, they were the ones that were creating the music. And so um, the idea was that that Mulligan was there uh, as, if you like, um, an instrument by which uh, the artists could have a lot of say in the production of their own material, uh, both pre-studio and in-studio, And then that Mulligan would release the the albums, and that uh, profits would find their way back to, to the artists.
0: The actual situation was also uh, constructed in favour of the artist rather than the record company. And um,
2: could you explain how that was? How that was the case?
0: Well, it, it's it's probably difficult to explain, in as much as the it's usually the small print in contracts that are the most um, devastating um, as far as artists uh, go. Um, I I think the main difference was in the interpretation of the contracts. In other words, in studio time, allowing complete uh, artistic freedom, uh, not going ahead and producing something that the artist was not totally happy with. Um, In other words, making sure, regardless of the cost possibly, that the product, the end product, the end master recording was as close as possible to what the artist wished it to be. Apart from the the actual contractual situation, at the time there were very few companies interested in giving bands like the Bothy Band in Ireland and musicians like um, Mick Hanley a recording contract, or even entering into any kind of deal with them to record their material. Um, Most deals that were done were done by international companies with very restrictive um, contracts, um, a lot of this material was subsequently deleted or would not be available anymore. So Mulligan had the the advantage of being here in Ireland, seeing the groups, and wanting to make records of these people. I obviously administered the company, did the the, the the all the groundwork related to the running of the company. Um, This included uh, copyright details. Now, Donal and Michal, their function, they were directors of the company, uh, was mainly to produce records, obviously to recommend recordings that Mulligan should do, to um, possibly supervise recordings where they weren't themselves producing, and to take an active part in, in the actual production of the material. Now, I also would have recommended recordings but the early recordings that Mulligan did, uh, I think mainly w- were done at the request or at the suggestion of people like Michal and Donal.
2: Mulligan established its headquarters at 101 Temple Oak Road in Dublin. As well as housing the company's offices, it was also home to several musicians who wrote and recorded for the label.
0: We took over the house first. The musicians came afterwards. Uh, Michal, I think... Uh, decided to move in and uh, work from there Um, and as time went on we had other um, tenants musicians mainly who came and uh, took up a flat or stayed in the house itself we had also a muse at the back which we had intended turning into a studio or pressing plant but when it became obvious that we couldn't go ahead with this, we moved the offices to the Muse at the back and left the house as a residence for these musicians. There was certainly a lot of activity. Most nights of the week there were musicians calling uh, to see one or other of the musicians who were there. People came from abroad that the Bothy Band had met on tour. Invariably they came with sleeping bags and would be still there today, I think, only that we we, we had to close down the operation. Um, But we had a lot of good friends and indeed a lot of hangers-on at at the time, and there was always something happening in in Mulligan. Like, I think the the house in Temple Oak Road was the place where most musicians retreated to after uh, gigs in town or whatever was going on at the time.
4: of clothes, and off to the shoemaker's shop, as so she goes, for a kiss in the morning early. The cobbler rose, and he soon let her in, his awl and his hammer were neat as a pin, and he had the will for to greet her so slim, with the kiss in the morning early. Mihal vacated his flat and i moved in and i lived there for about i
5: think
4: it was a year or something two years uh so it was just simply by being in the that circle that i I, we had a, I had a chat with Mihal one night and he was saying he was moving out or something and i said i'd love to take over the, the room and there was great activity going on like there was the place was full of musicians i think red peters was in Downstairs, Kathy Moore was living there. and She was doing batiks, and she was part of the Pumpkinhead. Um, who else was there? Oh, PJ Curtis was living there. Uh, Jimmy Faulkner. Uh, PJ had, a great, he had all his music there. So it was a hive of activity. There was always something happening. It's very hard to get the bed in the house. I remember one master session there of Paddy Glackin and Paddy Keenan, which went on to tape. And uh, which got was stolen. That was the best session I was ever at. I'd say.
6: I certainly would would have spent a, a lot of time up there. Yeah, sort of visiting there, to, uh, talking to it, say. Well, like when Mihal was living up there, and there were a lot of sessions there at night. P. J. Curtis lived there. It it was very much a, a centre. A, when when I put this description on it that like if if Mulligan. Were, were a religion, which of course it w- wouldn't be quite. Well, then, then uh, Mulligan Mansions, which was the Christian that I gave it, would, would have been its its mask.
3: The the whole thing about Mulligan was that uh, the offices uh, were yes, in one on one Road, um, people lived there as well. Musicians lived there, and uh, the offices were there. So it was like a collective where, um, 24 hours a day, there was a, a company of people that that were involved in uh, a very creative very creative work of talking about music, being involved in it, uh, so it wasn't just like going into an office 9 to 5. It was uh, 24 hour.
2: You lived there too, didn't
3: I, you? Yes, I lived there. In fact, it was amazing. I remember at one stage in the basement, uh, Red Peters was living downstairs. Jimmy Faulkner, who is now at Hot Foot, he was living downstairs eh, in the basement. Willie Matthews, who, was, um, who did a lot of our covers uh, and artwork, American, uh, he was living down the basement. The offices were in the middle uh, floor, And then upstairs, Mick Hanley was living upstairs, Michala Donal, I was living up there, Uh, David Hanley was living up there for a while when he was finishing off his his novel, and uh, Cathy Moore, who used to be with Pumpkinhead. Uh, And so I remember one particular day that downstairs rehearsing uh, were the Floating Dublin Blues Band. Um, In the middle section uh, of the house, the Bothy Band were rehearsing, and upstairs there was various members of Midnight Well rehearsing. And down the back, then later on that night, we had a little muse down the back, um, the Boomtown Rats were just beginning to, to farm and rehearse and I remember uh, Kathy Moore and myself kind of sneaking down and uh, eavesdropping on this group that were um, there rehearsing and uh, their leader coming in making uh, cups of tea and saying that they were going to get to number one and that they were really going to make it and I remember Kathy Moore saying uh, that guy whoever he is he's really going to take that band to, to really? get something to, 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 to get somewhere and of course he turns out to be young Bob Geldof
0: We had used the muse as a rehearsal rooms for various groups. And that was where we came in contact with Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats.
2: Tell me a bit about that.
0: Well I had been asked if I could make the place available for rehearsals for the band because they were finding it difficult getting a place that was quiet in the first instance for them and also that it wouldn't their music wouldn't be intruding and annoying neighbours so we allow them use the muse uh, for a period of months while they made up a demo which they intended selling to an international company they were quite positive they were going to get this international deal um, but they were also certain because of their relationship with us and because we had given them this kind of facility that they would like Mulligan to issue uh, their records in Ireland. So wh- while they were um, doing a deal for the world, they excluded Ireland, which they then uh, gave to, to Mulligan. Well, we had, obviously, the first single they did, Looking After Number One, and their first, second and third albums. And then uh, the Rats themselves altered their international deal um and the rights in Ireland went to WEA. With a group like the Rats, a lot of money is required for promotion, and uh, while singles like um, I Don't Like Mondays sold in excess of 40,000 copies, uh, we still lost money on that, because there was so much money spent on promotion um, that we ended up, I think, in the end, by having lost money on, on the deal. You do have to have world distribution to be able to get some money back out of a uh, an act like the, Bur- the boomtown rats
6: again if you look at the catalogue there's everything from from rock to, to just what is completely straight traditional that was bobby casey's one and it's i suppose it's it's because of that time like you might you might put it down to sean O'Rea, the to all those times rock musicians and traditional musicians were sort of rubbing shoulder, shoulder to shoulder late at night sort of sometimes very late at night perhaps if i can say that in place like the meeting place and uh, the catalogue it covers all all those different things from say gay and terry woods um Deke O'Brien, that was uh, night bus i think was the name of his band right to th- this one of bobby casey and uh Michal's idea i think it was was that there would be a section of the catalogue devoted to just pure traditional music a very good idea but i don't think there was any other Records besides this one, which, which was the one that I did, uh, Bobby Casey's one. I suppose I knew Bobby a bit, and and be- I suppose because I did produce some other records like for for Greilin, and that uh, I suppose I had the, perhaps the right qualifications. It involved talking to him, arranging a date. We recorded in Harry Bradshaw's house, which is probably a good idea because you know if you're doing it in a studio, you're talking about I don't know, well, thirty or forty pounds an hour. But uh, Har- Harry. Would be much more flexible about what time, but yes, he had equipment, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that made a, a made a, a very good record, and like perfect, perfect sound quality. In that, just what you need, and maybe that informal atmosphere, which you know some tra- traditional musicians like that, when they go into a, a big place like Windmill, that they feel slightly intimidated if just by something that looks like the, the the cockpit of an aircraft. He had a long lineage from from West Clare. I think his father was a man called Scully Casey who had a lot of music that only. Is, is was found down there and that's in the tradition of sort of gareth barry willie clancy uh, john kelly that, that particular region music which is a strong one and bobby has been in london for 30 years but when you listen to him play you'll you hear all of west Clare. so he's very authentic he has the, the, those tunes from there and he is a very good player
2: Peter Brown talking about the Bobby Casey album Taking Flight which he produced in 1979. Peter himself played pipes on three albums released by Mulligan.
6: One was Mick Hanley's one, that was The the Kiss in the Morning Early. There there were two horn pipes on that and one of them I think is a version, they're both versions of Shan Van Vogt and Mick found them in different places and I played the pipes on that. album if the calf fits uh, there's a big long track of 15 or 16 reels which i remember uh, it doesn't have any title at all i remember calling it the, the loneliness of the long distance fiddler because it goes on for 16 minutes and i played a reel on this called the hunter's purse it's somewhere around the middle and i remember i was to play the flute in it because kevin well i i used to play the flute a bit with kevin uh sometimes and he he liked the style that i had but when I came in that night I had the pipes case with me and I said can I just try the pipes on it and he said oh yeah and I did it and it, it worked really well because uh, I remember afterwards Kevin said in, in that accent that he had something he said uh, yeah this is really going to become a record now or something like that First record that Scullion ever made. Scullion's what you might call their their folk album, uh, and on this I think I played on about three or four. I played the whistle on some, and the, the flute on on another one called Domes. I remember, and at the 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 back end there's a sort of a musical tag onto uh, a song that Sonny got called the Fruit Mary Shop. Just he, he I think he was sitting at the piano. He told me and he he was reading Joyce, and the the print more or less came off the. The, the page and, and into his hands, he he put that paragraph to music. But he said he he felt himself I think to be just sort of like a a, a medium for it, that. That it was all there done from almost. At the back end of that, there is uh, a piece of music with with the pipes and the, the saxophone together. And we we seem to think that that was the first time that the pipes and the saxophone were, were ever matched together. Not not the last obviously. And I can remember this much about it that. Sonny, the, the pipes piece was laid down, and Sonny then was doing the sax as it were to sort of answer it and sort of weave round it. And he he did it once or twice, and it was OK. And he came out and he listened. I think he didn't like it. He went back in again, and he did what was a brilliant one, and everyone was saying, "Well, well, that is it. The second Buffy band album was is, is called "Old Hag, You've Killed Me." That's a jig, I think that that Willie Clancy had the "Kalychtov Irish May." But the, the band had been playing at the Cambridge Folk Festival, I think, just when this, uh, just after the album had been recorded. It was recorded, I think, in a place in Wales called called Rockfield, and I had I had been playing myself with them for about six weeks j- just before that. But when they came back from Cambridge, and it was a matter of finding a title for an album. That's always a difficult thing to do. Apparently, the, the conventional wisdom within the band was that it should be called Is There a Bar on Mars? Now, that's, that's an odd enough title, uh, you might think, for a traditional album. But then, on the other hand, the, the, the counter-argument to that was that since uh, Irish music and rock music were, were coming very close together at that time and in something like The Bothy Band, that maybe a sort of a zany title was a good thing. But I think there was actually there may have been actual threats to leave by at least one person if it wasn't wasn't changed the objections being that uh, there's a certain drink association with Irish music uh, perhaps and the, the idea being that if the Bothy band were going out to play on Mars the first question would be asked would be where's the nearest pub or something like that
7: all work again. my the
2: Within a few years of setting up, Mulligan had built up an impressive catalogue of records which represented the best of Irish contemporary folk and traditional music. It remained nonetheless a small company, operating for the most part in small budgets, but always aiming for the highest standards possible in the recording and production of albums. Financial pressures were, as a result, constant and unrelenting, and were ultimately to lead the company into conflict with its own musicians.
1: I would say that I I, I had... Um an idealistic attitude towards that because I would want to um, record something um, as as best we could, uh, regardless of what it cost. Well, It was obviously a consideration. I mean, we had budgets, but uh, I didn't consider them my problem and uh, I wasn't involved in the, say, the business administration of the company. Seamus only looked after that, um, but I... I just uh, I treated it as um, a sort of an open situation, and um, generally speaking, we managed to record things as they as as we thought they should be recorded, and to spend enough time on them. And Seamus handled the problem of making ends meet.
6: I didn't get paid at the time, but I sort of fixed a fee in in my own mind, at least, and I never broached the matter because I, you know, a lot of the time, if if you don't really need money, I suppose we are not if you're not really uh, if the wolf isn't really at the door, you'll sort of wait for for a while and perhaps sort of mention it quietly to someone like that. But it went on a very long finger. So I remember I, I left RTE, I went to to London, I was living there for a while, and from London I decided to go to France, and I had no money at all. And suddenly I thought to myself, well, now I never got this money. It was £200 I decided was a suitable figure. So I sent a letter uh, to Mulligan, to Seamus O'Neill, and said, could you send over this now, because I'm really... Uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot, I'm skinned. So there was no answer, came, and maybe with about a week or four days to go before I go to, uh, off, to off to France, I said, it's not gonna, I'll I'll ring him. And I rang, and he wasn't there, and Nell was there, uh, and she said that he was gone to the bank, actually, as it happened, uh, and that she'd leave a message. So I, I really d- thought at this stage, no, know, I'd be lucky to get it, but when I, I he, Seamus did rang, ring back, and he said to me, uh, that he had gotten the letter. And I said, well, w- what did you do when you got it? And he, he said to me, well, I, I did a thing that is is quite customary to do when you get demands for money. And I said, what's that? And he said, um, nothing. So I said, like, Seamus, uh, if, if you can manage it, I, I, I really would appreciate it. So to to his eternal credit, and I give him public gratitude here, that he sent off the money by some form of express not only in in, uh, Irish uh, Punt, but actually in in sterling, £200, and I took it to a bank, some special bank in the centre of London, in like Threadneedle Street or something, walked in and changed it and came out feeling that... A richer man. A richer man, and and decided uh, the the smile, a wider smile.
3: Well, the albums were promoted uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, This was one of the difficulties. We spent a lot of time in and a lot of effort in producing the material, in getting the uh, recorded material to the highest possible uh, standards. And then when the album came out and was in the sleeve and the album was fine and the sleeve was fine, we didn't really seem to have very much, uh, I think, clout in promoting. Um, We didn't have the money to to promote because all the money was being ploughed into the production of the album. And I remember when uh, the Midnight Well album came out and I was... Uh, it was my job to see that the thing was promoted if I remember correctly I think uh, my promotion budget (laughs) for promoting the Midnight Well album was in the region of £18 and I spent the £18 on little posters and stuck them around town Uh, the the way that we promoted it was footwork we just assumed that the record was so good that everybody was going to snatch it up and start talking about it, which they did but um, it wasn't exactly the way that a major record company would have promoted an uh, 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 an album such as the Midnight Well album
7: Most of the time, my mind's on happiness, yes, some of the time, but not for long, I get a picture of something that's yet to come, I get a feeling telling you what's undone.
3: I saw that there was a lot of dissatisfaction in certain quarters from musicians that didn't... Um, see, I was also on the ground talking to musicians and outward musicians, and uh, there was a lot of unhappy musicians around that uh, thought that they should be getting back perhaps um, royalty payments that they weren't getting back. And um, I don't know, it just seemed to me that the core, the central core of what Mulligan was all about was beginning to... to um, implode on itself it, it just began to lose the impetus and the creative buzz that was around in 76 and 77 and uh, maybe it was the natural way of all things that um, it just had two great years and then things began to things began to go wrong very subtly
8: it fell out upon one Martinmas time when snow lay on the border there came a troop of soldiers here to take up their winter
7: quarters. And they
8: rode north and they rode south, and they rode o'er the border. And there they met with a nice little girl, and she was a farmer's daughter. Made her swear a solemn oath with the salt tear in her eye, that she would come to the quarter gates when no one did her spy. I have absolutely no regrets. I, I do regret, I don't regret it, but I do, I'm, I'm slightly angry about the fact that I've received no statement or royalty from Mulligan in at least six years. Um, It angers me when I see the album on sale uh, through Polydor here, or through Greenland America. It angers me to think that it's an ongoing situation, that I'm not going to get any money. Seamus's big thing was to build up a catalogue. That was the first thing to do, was to build up a catalogue. Like, put all the money into into, uh, material. Which he did very well. Um, but I think a lot of the albums which sold, for instance, like the Bothy Band albums or the album I made with Paul Brady, very much supported other records, which, um, as somebody said the other day, appeared without trace. But I don't think you could call it a musician's company when nobody got their just Jews from it. It was nice. Had it Had it been a success and had it'd been run correctly, then it would have been absolutely great, it would have been perfect. I do remember from a very early position, even before the company was set up, there was talk about buying um, studio equipment and having its own studio, which at the time seemed a lofty and fine idea, but in retrospect was perhaps a symptom of the the lack of reality on which it was founded.
2: By 1980, Mulligan was receiving financial assistance from the Arts Council. Paddy Glackin was traditional music officer for the council at that time.
9: I think the standards that um, Mulligan set, I think, uh, were particularly high. That's reflected, I suppose, in records like the Botty Band records. And uh, I think, overall, I think it was a very, very worthwhile venture. I think it's a pity, though, that the, the artistic standards weren't matched by the business standards. It got itself into situations which it just couldn't um, cope with. Uh, I think it overestimated the market for traditional music, and uh, I think that um, the company got itself involved in, in deals which it wasn't able to um, uh, to honour. Well, we looked into their sales, obviously, because uh, because again of the arrangements which Mulligan had entered, entered into with the council. Um, the sales were were not good, but then again, you know. it's a, they weren't good for the Irish for, the, for, for, for records in general and uh, I think basically what happened is that as I said earlier I think Mulligan just overestimated the size of the market. Okay. Well there was a certain ideal involved insofar far as they were trying to achieve the highest uh, artistic standards and in, some of the, in, and in the case of the Bothy band I think they did achieve that but obviously to the detriment of the business side of things I think it just goes to prove that musicians are notoriously bad business people.
0: And I suppose the fact that Mulligan still exists today that the company hasn't gone into liquidation that it's still there um, is evidence of the fact that, that we have managed to override most of these problems. Um, I say we're there today, we, we haven't obviously done any production in the last three or four years, but we hope to get back to doing this uh, in the not too distant future.
2: What What is in the future for Mulligan? What kind of a company will it be?
0: Well, I, I would think obviously on the same lines as it was originally with a view to recording Uh, the kind of music we had done in the the beginning, specialist music, um, music that doesn't have a high commercial um, element to it, but obviously we will take the mistakes we had made and and look at them very carefully and make sure that it it doesn't happen again. Um, These obviously would be in the realms of overspending on uh, production, getting involved in In recordings which at the end of the day we weren't able to use for one reason or another due to temperamental artists or whatever else. Um, I think we will make sure that whatever we get involved in, wherever we invest our money, that at the end of the day we will have a product which we can sell.
3: If you take out the albums and listen to the the albums that Mulligan produced, um, they're still the the cream of uh, that 70s period. And I think that it was a one-off experiment. I, cu- I can't see it working uh, under present-day conditions, you know, the, the way the economy is and uh, people's minds are, are in a different space at the moment. Um, I think it was just one of those rare occurrences that happened uh, at... It was the right time, the right place, there was the right mixture of musicians, the right feelings amongst musicians, the right um, energies were being released, the right creative energies, the right uh, uh, ideas all came together and, and worked. Well, I would think
0: that it was probably one of the foremost Irish labels that existed from uh, 1975 upwards to uh, 1980. Uh, I think the quality of our productions, our presentation, and the the content of the catalogue was hard to surpass. And I think it also inspired a lot of other record companies to follow suit and to get into the same kind of production that we were in in, in those years, it also inspired, I think, international companies to look more closely at uh, Irish music um, and to produce some very fine records from it.
1: I went through periods of resentment, I suppose, at the fact that uh, that things hadn't that, that it wasn't more successful financially and that uh in the end I didn't really make any money out of it uh having put a lot of time into it but uh the the payoff is the the music and the fact that it did add a certain impetus to uh the development of Irish music recording at the time and and may have influenced the situation as it is today which is very good it do, it doesn't look uh, as likely to happen again now, but uh, that's not to say that that it won't. I think that uh, Dublin is becoming a centre of music uh, in world terms. There's no doubt about that. Um, like the the quality of the studios that are here now are equal to none. You know, I mean, the second to none, really. And uh, there are many alternatives for people who come here to record. Uh, I think that. Uh, Given the quality of studios that are around and the, the life that's in, in the recording business at the moment, that it is possible that something like that might happen again. It depends really on what kind of focus uh, comes on Ireland as a source of music in world terms, but it could happen.